HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. I'm sure you remember the first time, probably as a child, that someone cracked open a coconut for you or maybe poked a hole in it or a couple of holes so you could stick in a straw and drink that sweet water. Did you ever think about their background and where they came from? We're going to find out all about coconuts today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And indeed, the coconut has enthralled people, particularly young people, uh, for for centuries, forever. Um, and and as I said, you can remember, probably remember the first time you witnessed the coconut or even tried yourself to crack one open. Of course, if you have traveled to the Caribbean islands or even actually throughout Europe, you, then you knew that coconuts were pretty much in evidence all the time around. And now in America, they're, they're part of the, the staple on the grocery shelves. But it wasn't always so. And today, my guest is Ramin Ganeshram. And Ramin is a journalist and professional chef trained at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City. For many years, she was an award-winning writer for the New York Times and Newsday. She's the author of several cookbooks, including Sweet Hands, Island Cooking from Trinidad and Tobago, and the IACP award winner in her most recent, Cooking with Coconut. Her writing has been featured in Saveur Gourmet, when it was around, <laughs> Bon Appetit, and Epicurious, as well as National Geographic, and so many others. Welcome, Ramin. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I actually happened upon an article that you had written about, um, I'm going to say the coconut diaspora, <laughs> in mm-hmm. a sense. Um, but, you know, the coconuts being dispersed throughout all the different islands. But give us a little background from what we know. I mean, I know a lot is still in debate, and some much of it is folklore as well. But 
Where where are the coconuts? Where do they originate? Well, it's, it's interesting. The National Geographic Society actually undertook a study that was completed in 2011 that pretty much definitively says that coconuts came from India and Southeast Asia. And, um, in fact, all of the world's coconuts are, you know, they sort of can be traced back to those, to those genomes of uh, these original coconuts in India and Southeast Asia. And, of course, it's spread around the world. Um, the debate lies in exactly when and how, but the methods are pretty clear. We do know all the different ways coconuts have gotten to the Caribbean, for example, and, you know, into Africa, for example. Well, in so many, and I say a lot of it was folklore, too, because people said, well, coconuts float, and they just floated across the water and landed on the shore. And then Thor Heyerdahl comes along and does a little test that says, no, no, that's not possible. And throw, he yeah. brought him on, his, on the Contiki with him, sailing across the South Pacific. So, I mean, certainly, um, as we will hear from you more during the rest of the show, is that the islands, many of these um Caribbean islands and um, uh, South Pacific islands, they were all settled by so many different um, travelers that they would, I'm sure, load them on their boats, right? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, coconut traveled almost from its beginning uh, in the boats of traders uh, who were either, for example, Arab traders who you know, went around the coast of India. Ultimately, they brought it to Africa. They brought it up, up into the Middle East from North Africa, um, from where it, it, it traveled on the Silk Road to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and with respect to the Caribbean, it was the same idea. Those same European um, uh, colonizers who experienced coconut through the Silk Road, who then their travels to India and Africa um, brought it very specifically to the Caribbean, um, looking for not just coconut, but looking for those uh, plants from around the subtropical world that could also grow in in the Caribbean. So that's kind of interesting about the Caribbean, that a a vast variety of things that we associate as Caribbean, um, in fact, were brought there from the South Pacific, from Africa, Mm -hmm. from India. Interesting. And coconut is clearly a you know chief right. among those. Well, and along with the coconut came their cuisine because you had to find a way to use these. I mean, initially, I'm sure people just you know wanted to drink the juice and you know and and chew the the sweet tasty meat of the coconut once they could find a way to get into it, right? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that, although you know, it's it's interesting that. Um, when the Arab traders went uh, into India and into uh, Southeast Asia, where the, you know the coconut was native, they had already observed people. This is you know two, three thousand years ago. Had already observed people figuring out how to not just eat the meat and drink the water, but make a thick, sort of soupy, what we would call coconut milk, out of the the meat mixed with water, ground together, and to use the fiber of the coconut plant in a cloth-like way. And, in fact, making boats out of coconut planking, the wood of the tree, and the fiber from the fruit. Um, so, you know, fairly early on, they figured out that, that this fruit can be used in so many different ways. Right, right, which made it such a popular and, and interesting um, fruit to, to take with them and, you know, and, and not 
terribly perishable if you're if you're trip is under 100 days but i mean also you know it doesn't bruise it just sort of you can just throw it in a in a bottom of a bag i mean this was a pretty good deal for these people and in fact well so so let's talk about a lot of the um a lot of the the money that was made off of it i mean coconut palms um well they then found their way onto these islands but then came all the colonists and they came for a couple of reasons, one of them being the coconut crops. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. So in, you know, initially, particularly uh, in the Caribbean, we really talk about sugar and uh, cocoa being the primary crops that, that really made fortunes. But there were certainly people who made fortunes on coconut as well, more into uh, the later, so you know, the cocoa and the sugar fortunes can date back to the 18th century, right? But the the coconut fortunes started really in the 19th century because of a greater use of the fruit in the United States. Mm. It was used in the United States in the 18th century. There's no doubt we have evidence of that. But you know, the South is the area that was always associated with coconut, even when the rest of the country stopped using it. And that really did provide a great a great market for it. And what's interesting about the coconut, I think, in terms of fortune and in terms of status um, and wealth, is that because it was considered so rare in Europe, because it was rare in Europe, it, in as early as the 15th century, in the 1400s in Europe, they were making, and there's some really, really good examples of this in, in the British Museum's online archive, uh, goblets of coconut shells that were mounted on gold stands and encrusted with jewels and decorative uh, objects in which uh, precious metals were wrapped around or incorporated into carvings made from coconut shells. So there was already this predisposition to think about the coconut as something very precious, very rare, very high-end. So it was very much a status symbol in the United States, particularly in the South, where it was more likely to uh, land in its whole form uh, without, you know, and, and without perishing. Um, so, the, so coconut's really interesting. It not only made fortunes, but it became a symbol of fortune um, in many ways. Huh. So I mean, I mean, it's true. When you crack up, you have this wonderful shell. It, it feels so wasteful to throw it away. Use it as a bowl. Use it as a cup. I mean, it, yeah. I can see where that was uh, terrific that they that they gilded it then and put it on a pedestal. That's very interesting. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, we didn't. What we didn't do is talk about the name, and and the name is interesting. Coconut, where you know some people say, well, because it's co- it's grown in a lot of places where the cocoa bean is grown, and so it's a cocoa nut, and it's not it has no rela- It's not chocolate. It's not cocoa. Um, mm-hmm. But that name, um, you know, where the name comes from, I'm sure, right? Yeah, it was actually it was actually Portuguese traders that that named this fruit um, cocoa being. Uh, a form of the word like head or skull, and they thought it looked like a skull because of the eyes, because of those three eyes three dots, yeah. at the top of the plant. Yeah, so it kind of you know looked like two eyes and a nose, and it roughly around the size, you know, the inner nut, not the whole big fruit, roughly the size of a man's head, more or less. And they were the ones that, that started to call it that, and that became essentially 
it became um, the name. Yeah. Um, so because the word was cocoruto, which meant skull. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the grinning, it kind of looks like a funny grinning face. And so Coco mm-hmm. became sort of like a crazy, meaning like crazy or grinning or and and all that all that related to the coconut that's great yeah um you were talking about people making their fortunes and and of course later on when we had some uh when the industrial revolution came in and we uh started to mass produce uh um fruit and vegetables not in their natural form but uh, coconut because coconut takes a lot of work grading all that coconut yeah and something that Americans know quite well, you go to the grocery store and maybe you're <laughs> baking or you go and you look for coconut. The first thing you see on the show is not coconut in its natural form or anything, but it's that blue bag, a very mm-hmm. popular bag. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? You know, that's actually a great story. And I have it in um, Cooking with Coconut. And so, you know, to, to really kind of appreciate this this story, we have to back up a little bit, which is that. Um, apparently, and I say apparently only because, you know, I've seen it in a couple of sources, and I always like to verify things uh, by multiple sources, but um, in the South particularly, there were there was such a thing called the Coconut Man, right? There was a man who sold coconut and, you know, would open it for you. And, and, you know, they, they came from the sh- on ships from the, from the Caribbean, would open it for you, grade it, give you the water, whatever it is that you wanted to, to do with it. It was very much a southern convention. It was very much a small-town convention that pretty much had died out, uh, you know, by probably the 1880s or 90s, from my understanding. But there was a gentleman uh, named uh, Baker, uh, who Franklin Baker, actually senior, who who had um, uh, who a wheat mill in Philadelphia, and this is in the 1890s. And Philadelphia had long been a city, as I'm sure you know, of milling, right, milling grain and sugar uh, for from the 18th century, in fact, and. Uh, so he was very young. He was an entrepreneur. He had this business, and he um, decided he was going to expand his business into Cuba. So he did, and he had sent uh, his grain, his flour, to Cuba, and instead of payment, what came back was a hold full of coconut. And he just didn't know what to do with this, and he just thought, you know, what, what am I going to do with these fresh coconuts? Um, it wasn't easy to unload at that point. You know, Philadelphia was in a city like those cities in the South that had a lot of experience with this fruit. There had actually been one small um, coconut seller in Philadelphia who had sold coconut products, sold coconuts, sold a small amount of uh, dried or grated coconut and had gone out of business. So he bought the operation and figured out a way to mass, grate, and dry the coconut so that it could be shelf-stable. No easy task. (laughs) No, no, it's not because coconut has a lot of fat, right? And so uh, it it becomes rancid uh, once it's out of its shell very, you know, fairly quickly, in fact. As anyone who's ever opened a can of coconut milk and not used it all in one go, they realize by the third day in the refrigerator, it's not so good. So... Um, basically, he, he ultimately, uh, very smart marketing, started uh, selling it with recipes for baking, started really promoting it as a baking product. I, I think his name probably didn't hurt, <laughs> Franklin <laughs> Baker. Um, 
and he started selling this dry coconut product, um, and he made this fortune. And that's the blue bag that we are all accustomed to, Baker's, Baker's uh, Sweden Coconut Flakes. The sugar that he added to the dry coconut um, actually served as a preservative. Absolutely. That allowed... Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it's something that, you know, when you're rummaging through the shelves and you just really need something sweet, sometimes that bag of that blue bag is sitting there and it's an instant treat. You know, you can get into it and uh, and eat that. But that brings me to the topic of the cuisine or and cooking with coconut. And in this country in particular, um, it is associated, was associated for many years with a sweet um, baked items mostly and mm-hmm. or the cocoa the cocoa loco the 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 sweetened coconut cream for a pina colada for those who you know were making fancy drinks um, and and the items that you could find in grocery stores were basically only the sweetened flaked coconut um, when do you you know like when how did we sort of get get some of the other um, cuisines? to be more familiar with us and and have the products that we can now use for, let's say, curries and and Mm -hmm. creams and sauces? Well, you know, I think that what really this has to do with, it's kind of a long, it it, it was a long process based on um, immigration and acceptance and adaptation to what we would call "quote unquote" ethnic food ways in the United Certainly. States, starting very, starting very specifically with Latino foods, mm-hmm. where you know first Mexican and then other Latino diasporic foods became um, popular because you know of immigration in the United States. But what that open, did was open the door to other flavors within those cuisines. So you know, one tropical food kind of led to another tropical food, and I would say that you know those cuisines is where are where. Um, interesting coconut started to open up. And to your point, still within that realm of the dessert, right? So mm-hmm. Maybe it would be a coconut rice pudding. Maybe it would be a coquito, which is a Puerto Rican uh, version of eggnog that uses coconut milk mm-hmm. um, in it. But then as knowledge of the larger cuisine expanded and expanded, and then, you know, dishes that incorporated coconut milk or maybe unsweetened coconut flakes started to to come in, and they served as a bridge to other cuisines that had the same flavor profiles, heat, right, chilies. Uh, so there you add Indian, you add Thai, um, you add some African cuisines, um, rice, the same thing, right, and coconut, mm-hmm. which fits really well. And actually, uh, the Culinary Institute of America, maybe five or six years ago, did a lot of work on this idea of bridge cuisines, how um, the flavors that appear in one accepted uh, culture become the gateway to other accepted cultures, as long as there are other factors to bring them into the zeitgeist, like immigration, for right. example. Right. Yeah, bridge cuisines is such a great, that's a great term, um, because that's, it has, it has opened our world in many ways after we learn about the food. First, somebody has to go and travel and say, oh, wow, that was, eat this really good food. And they bring it back and they want to, you know, replicate it. And then suddenly we know the cuisine before we know the country. And, right. you know, lo and behold, you, you know, you go and you learn about the country. We're going to talk about the cuisine of a specific country um, after we take a short break. Because I think it's so interesting how the coconut is incorporated into 
the cuisine, and we're talking about Trinidad and Tobago, where you have a personal relationship, um, and that, and all a lot of the other Caribbean islands, and um, and how it is their cuisine. However, again, it's one of those cuisines that many of the different dishes that incorporate the coconut come from many other countries. So we're going to talk about that when we come back after a short break. Stay tuned. And this one is called Home by the Hollows. We'll be right back. I went down to North Carolina. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sirchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Ramin Ganeshram, and uh, we're talking about coconuts. We're talking about coconuts, and we're also talking about the cuisine of the countries that incorporate a lot of coconut in their cooking. And with Ramin, we're going to talk about the cuisine of Trinidad and Tobago. Ramin, tell us a little bit about your connection with um, that location. Sure. Yeah. So my my father was born in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. He um, was the grandchild of uh, at least, and I say at least because these are the only three people that we can readily identify, which Mm -hmm. often happens in these types of immigration stories, three uh, East Indian indentured laborers um, and a fourth grandparent whose identity we don't know, but we're pretty sure was an East Indian um, and uh, so they came in the 1840s, 1850s to Trinidad as part of uh, the British Empire's essentially program, if you want to call it that, scheme, to bring indentured laborers into Trinidad to replace um, enslaved workers, which had uh, slavery had ended in the Caribbean around 1832. So uh, that's my connection. My father was born there. He was third generation. Um, and as a result, he would often bring my brother and I back to Trinidad almost every summer. He was a New York City school teacher um, to spend the summer there with his with his family. So we really got to have an immersion, if you will, into the culture, not just from being the child of a Trinidadian immigrant, but getting to go there and live there and be, you know, fully part of society there. Mm-hmm. Um, and experience it that way. Well, which is wonderful because you got to know the food. And, yeah. of course, I saw many of these, you know, the, the slave labor for the sugarcane plantations and the cocoa, um, and then coconuts come right behind that. Uh, 
I mean, we're talking about a country that had so many influences as many of these smaller islands with the colonists from, you know, the Spanish to the Dutch to the French and then ultimately the British. So all of these influences play large. And, of course, as you mentioned before, the um, the traders who would, you know, make stops in these different countries and these different islands and and bring their cuisine or adapt some of their food to, you know, what they had there. Um, and I found that you you're, you have wrote a book several years ago called Sweet Hands, and mm-hmm. it's the cuisine of the cooking of Trinidad and Tobago. And I I found it just wonderfully interesting. Doing first of all, leafing through and doing you know a, a kind of a broad look at the the different recipes. And one page, you go, oh, an Indian, re- oh, uh, uh, you know, a, a an African recipe, oh, a Chinese recipe. The the influences mm-hmm. in the cuisine are, you know, are are quite amazing. In we have to really stop and think about it, you know, when when we start, you know, looking at these foods and cooking these foods, and all wonderful and using a lot of similar ingredients. Um, when you so when you decided to, I mean, you as a child, you were there, spent a lot of time, loved. You have some wonderful stories. We're talking about your introduction to loving the, the different fruits and the, particularly the sweets. We talked about sweets before, but mm-hmm. um, in writing a book about the island cooking, um, you really had to go and do more of a, a culinary trip and a culinary research, did you not? Yes. In fact, I went um, back two or three times for the express, express purpose of doing culinary research, you know, not to visit family, not to visit friends, but to, to go as, as a chef and a food writer um, into kitchens of people I didn't know, into restaurant kitchens, into uh, estates, which is what we call plantations, um, and interview people and really understand it from the ground up, not just the narrow viewpoint I had as a, as a Trinidadian American looking into um, my family. Um, although I have to say that, you know, most Trinidadians, because especially now three and four generations out from, you know, colonization and being a colony, uh, we're so ethnically mixed in all of our families and our heritages are so intertwined that you do actually have a pretty good broad understanding of all the influences without even realizing Hmm. um, that you do. You know, so but I did then go about taking that base foundational knowledge and and do several research trips to kind of understand the history and what actually this means. And it was enlightening because there were some things that I, like many Trinidadians, thought were one thing, but actually were entirely something different. Huh. Uh, what um, and anything that ties together these these different dishes in the cuisine that you would say is is sort of a unifying feature or not? Actually, there are several unifying features. So uh, the the first is heat, chili pepper. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know that the hottest peppers in the world are often come from Trinidad. In fact, the currently crowned hottest pepper in the world, the Maruga scorpion, is from Trinidad, um, which came both from the West African tradition, our West African traditions, and our... Um, East Indian traditions, and so and that has followed through across the cuisine, even adapted cuisines that themselves may not necessarily have a lot of heat. For example, Syrian. We have a very strong Syrian Lebanese uh, community of a century or more in Trinidad, 
those foods have been adapted to include heat. Um, things like rice, consistent, you know, West Africa is, is the rice coast of Africa. Of course, India, you know, rice, rice eating, prodigiously rice eating country. That's another, um, you know, continuation. And coconut, of course, you know, so coconut, what's interesting about coconut is that it was enslaved people from West Africa who brought the knowledge of using these, you know, coconuts that were brought as part of the trade routes into the Caribbean because uh, it traveled from East Africa many, many centuries before to West Africa. So they brought that knowledge. Um, and then the East Indians, you would think that they, too, would be well-versed, and they were versed, but not well-versed, because most of the East Indians came from the northern part of India to the Caribbean, not the south, which is more of the coconut-consuming area hmm. of India. Interesting. So, but they were prepared. But there was some usage there, so they were prepared. There was that parity, that ability to say, we know what this is, and you're using it in this way. Certainly, we can adapt it um, for the absence of things like milk. You know, it's a small island. You don't have vast herds of dairy cows. That's so. right. Yeah. So then you substitute the uh, the natural product. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's I I had to have to make note, and I will post a picture of a couple of the your books, the coconut book and the sweet hands, the cooking of Trinidad, um, on our website because the cover of that book. To me, just like, you know, said it all before you even wrote Cooking with Coconut. And it's a set of hands grating a coconut into a bowl. And it is such a, a, a laborious task, I have to say, having done it many times. But you get used to it. Um, of course, I have one of those. Someone gifted me a, a, a coconut grater that I can actually squat down and sit on. Well, it's kind of little now, but I, mean, <laughs> you know, I used to be smaller, too, I suppose. But it has, you know, that very sharp round blade on, um, I think, in the shape of a rabbit or, or something, and the sharp blade coming out of the mouth. And I think that was probably Southeast Asian um, made. And that makes it a little easier. You can twist it. And they have machines, you know, that you can hand machines that you can grind the coconut. But it's just wonderful to see. It's a box grater. And there she is, you know, grating it. So tell me. So I'm thinking, oh, sweet hands, of course. But sweet hands has another meaning. Tell me about the, the meaning of sweet hands. Yeah, so the meaning of it, and it was, it's interesting because I debated with myself around this title. Uh, in Trinidad, if someone says you have, what they say is you have sweet hands, meaning that you're a good cook, that's what it means. Um, that nothing you can make with your hands would turn sour or bitter or bad. You have sweet hands. Um, now, of course, you say hand because of the just the, the Patois the, the accent, but the word is really sweet hands. So that's why it's, so that's why it's called that. And we debated because with that and the coconut on the cover, we we were concerned that people would think it was a baking book. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a that's why it says island cooking um, from Trinidad and Tobago. Right. But um, that that's that's actually what it means. It's a, it's it's a very high compliment in Trinidad if someone says that you have sweet hands. Interesting. That's Enormous great. compliment. I love yeah. that. I love it. Um, you know, it's, it, I mentioned before that we weren't, you know, baker's coconut, but baking the sweet flaked baking coconut, um, baker's baking coconut, was about the only thing that we could find for many years on the shelves um, in grocery stores without going to a, you know, a, an ethnic grocer or, a, you know, a gourmet food store. And that now it is, I would say, in every grocery aisle, one can find the cans of coconut milk. 
not the sweetened right. coconut milk, but the regular coconut milk for use in a lot of, um, of coconut-based curries and dishes. As well as now, just recently even, we've had different mills. And it's interesting because you talked about Baker having owned a, a wheat mill. Um, uh, Bob's Red Mill um, is one of them and, and many others that, that make the, you know, the grated unsweetened coconuts, um, and, you know, flaked and grated and, and flour, coconut flour. I mean, all of the different uses of coconut. And now coconut oil has just is enjoying this great boom in in cooking in this country um have you seen more of an interest in in the cuisines of these islands once these i mean what it was the chicken or the egg i'm obviously but um it's more accessible for cooks to to be able to use these products i yes absolutely and and i think because of that availability i mean i see coconut milk you know private label branded by supermarkets you know whatever mm-hmm. your local supermarket is right. there what we used to call no frills right but the private label brand um of coconut milk and coconut water and uh coconut oil even and i think that because it was originally touted so much as a health product and it really does have some wonderful healthful characteristics um it opened up this interest from that point first i think where people said oh this is this is something i want to incorporate into my diet um and then started to look for the how and 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 luckily there's this enormous canon of coconut product using recipes from the from all the coconut uh, producing countries in the world you know that that number into the hundreds and the thousands um so I think that it just became very easy to say, okay, well, I want to use this, and here's a way to do it. And then that, in turn, um, a sort of, uh, you know, increased their taste for the cuisines of, of those countries. All right, all right. Well, I, I saw a figure probably um, on Wikipedia or someplace that said that coconut palms are grown in more than 90 countries um, in the world, and the major producers being the Philippines, Indonesia, and India. And so you you know you immediately you think of those those cuisines and and you know coconut the ingredient being used in many of those dishes. Um, back to the Trinidadian uh, Trinidad and Tobago cuisine cooking, you mentioned that there were a couple of different ties that unify. One was the hot pepper heat, okay, mm-hmm. um, and what would and then go on from there. What would the other be? Right. You know, oh, rice. that's right. You did say you said rice, yeah. Um, yeah, and sugar. They have a. It seems to me quite an affinity for sweets. Yes, yes, and that's also again tied very much into that. Um, you know, in West Africa, in India, already you know sugar consuming, sugar growing, and sugar consuming countries, and then of course uh, the sugar in being where the much of the wealth of the Caribbean originally came from, and so. Um, Therefore, something like coconut works really well because it has its own natural mild sweetness, um, and it's a great substitute for flour in many ways. It's a great substitute uh, for milk in many ways, and so it was kind of a natural marriage to put the two things together, um, and not just in Trinidad, but through, but throughout the Caribbean. And and, and you're right, the, the sweet tooth in the Caribbean is legendary hmm. um, to to the point where many of the recipes in Sweet Hands, I cut the sugar in some cases in half because it would just be, I think, overwhelming 
for an American palate. And, and, and we're known as Americans for liking <laughs> sugar, too, but not like a Caribbean person, believe me. So, yeah. Uh, well, in um, you do a very nice job in, in talking about a lot of the different ingredients in both of your books on this cuisine. and um, But one that really caught caught my eye. Again, we're talking about the, um, well, two of them, actually, one savory and one sweet. Um, and that is something that uh, you that is called mixed essence. Mm-hmm. And tell yes. us about mixed essence. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you're asking me this because I just was having um, a conversation with somebody yesterday about mixed essence. <laughs> and uh, the fact is, mixed essence is really what it actually is now is a is a uh, combination of extracts that are that have been brought together: almond, uh, pear, vanilla, uh, for the specific purpose into one bottle, and it's sold as mixed essence for the specific purpose actually of mimicking. Um, <laughs> A flavoring that comes from tonka bean, which which grows in Trinidad. It's a hardwood, the tonka tree. The bean uh, is it's a large, about an almond-sized bean that has this very distinctive, almost but not quite vanilla flavor. And in fact, we're all familiar with it in um, vanilla candles or vanilla oh, scented yeah. Yeah. items. That's actually made with a tonka bean. It's not for sale or approved for use in the United States because it is the natural source of coumarin, the blood center upon which coumadin is based, the prescription drug. Mm -hmm. So because of that risk of over-ingestion, it's not available for sale in the United States. It is in Europe. Of course, it is in Trinidad. But mixed essence is meant to mimic the flavor and the aroma of the tonka bean, which is a very common flavoring in all baked goods and sweets right. in Trinidad. Well, it was on the top of my mind because I made your coconut bread from um, from which book? The, the, one of the books. And, and it was delicious. The recipe was wonderful. Um, I'm, and I am a fool for coconut, especially any <laughs> sweet coconuts and curries and anything that has coconut. I love coconut, but um, but I made so I had to make my own mixed essence for um, for it. And and it actually and it's it's wonderful. And it turned out you did it got that it was a, an aroma of regular ba- when you're baking. Okay, you know almond extract, vanilla extract, but it just the the rum and the orange flower water just brought you know pear extract. I did not have so that was that was missing. Um, but everything else was in there, and it just did give give a really nice, um, deep aroma. It was very nice. And I will say, the coconut bread. Tell me about the coconut bread. Tell, or tell our listeners about that. It's not really uh, just a, a – I think it's more of a, a – it, it is a sweet bread, but you say it's not. Or a breakfast well, – well, it's more of a breakfast bread. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess this, so, so coconut bread, it's often called sweet bread in Trinidad it, um, and throughout the rest of the Caribbean. I guess the best way to describe it for readers would be as a quick bread. It's in that same canon as things like pumpkin bread and zucchini bread mm-hmm. um, or banana bread, right? It's that, you know, uh, flour and baking powder and then this fruit additive um, and egg and butter and milk, right? So it's that quick bread category. I, so that's like actually the consistency generally of it. That should be what it is. Um, and so in Trinidad, 
historically, not so much anymore now. Everything, you know, Trinidad is very much like the United States. There are big supermarkets and all of these things that once were made only in the home uh, or in very, very small bakeries are available in supermarkets. But even when I was a child uh, and we would go visit, it was still very common for people to do all of their baking for the week on a Sunday after church. And so you would do all of your baking of, of you know, savory breads, and sweetbreads, like coconut bread, for breakfast and for tea, actually, because being a British colony, they continued to have that tradition of tea. And children, you know, to this day, they come home from school and we're in America, we say, do you want your snack? Trinidadian parents will say, are you ready for your tea? Mm. And, you know, and coconut bread is, is one of those things. So uh, my father, when I was growing up, did not bake every Sunday, certainly, um, but a few times a year he would bake. And he would make all of these goodies, the breads and the butter cake and, and sweet bread. And he did not include a key ingredient that in Trinidad they do include. And, in fact, um, I don't particularly care for in this context, and maybe because I'm used to my father's version, which is the candied mixed fruit that, it, uh, that you yeah. find in fruit cakes. Yeah. yeah. So that's usually when they make this recipe, it's just like the recipe you see, but with that addition. I don't particularly care for that. And he didn't do that. So, um, but when he, and it was always a weekend when he did this, and we knew it was coming because these coconuts would show up <laughs> from the West Indian market. And, you know, we knew that those coconuts would be grated to go into the, this coconut bread, which it was just. Some of my best memories of childhood were those baking days and this oh. coconut bread. Well, I can attest yeah. to the fact that it is delicious. <laughs> it's great. Thank um, you. The other um, item, well, the, a couple of things. Um, Kasarip syrup. I think we, we know that's. That, I think that's very interesting to talk about because um, it's used in savory stews. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So kasarip is actually uh, made by boiling down uh, cassava or yuca, um, and you boil it down until it becomes this really dark, um, almost bitter but sweet as well syrup. And now you can you can buy it very readily bottled in a Caribbean mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I do have a recipe to make it in, in, in sweet hands because it has other flavorings, right? It has cinnamon, it has cloves, and it has brown sugar. Um, it, it is very much based in the uh, West African tradition of browning meat, which is what, what, and this is pretty much how anything that isn't curried in Trinidad is often browned, which means you brown sugar into a caramel and then you add your meat. Kasarip is a, is, a, is a deeper version of this idea, and, it, and it's, uh, it really gives um, a very rich, very aromatic, very multi-layered flavor profile. I use it outside of West Indian cooking for those dishes that I think really could, could be deepened in flavor and benefit from it, one of which, for example, would be cassoulet. I have added kasarip to cassoulet. Mm. Um, and I've braised oxtail, oxtails, um, which in, in uh, cassoulet, which is, can, can be, um, you know, is another way to, to do that uh, and, and kind of really deepens that flavor. So um, I encourage people to try it and to think about trying it very much in the way that they might use something like a thick soy sauce. 
Right. All right. That's what it reminded yeah. me of in, in reading the recipe and, and looking at that, um, although I did not try that. Uh, the it's, It is just, it's interesting that um, things that I think, I guess you probably take for granted that are part of the the, um, the country's cuisine and cooking. And I'm as I look at it, I'm looking at different countries on every page, you know, with, from the piri-piri sauce to a curry powder to uh, Chinese five-spice powder and a garam masala. I'm, <laughs> so it, it really is a coming together of so many influences and so many wonderful cuisines. And coconut plays such a, an important role in many of those dishes. And, um, and I will say I was surprised at, you said that, uh, of course, heat, the pepper, the hot pepper, is one of the um, the main features of the Trinidadian cuisine. And yet, the Trinidad curry powder, you say, has no pepper. Yes, it doesn't. And because the pepper is added separately. Oh, okay. Um, As needed. And it's at, and, right. And it's, uh, it's generally, you know, I believe that's because, uh, you know, everybody has their own taste and, and their level of heat that they can tolerate. And so they add it. They add it after. Um, it's not uncommon in Trinidad to have people. I remember just eating very hot chili peppers, biting into them as a condiment while they eat. My father used to do this. Mm. I, it was fascinating to me to watch him eat when I was a child because he'd have his big plate of food, and for every forkful of food, he had these hot chili peppers, and he would just crunch off a bite. And, fill, and then you have a fork full of food, and he would eat three or four of these over the course of eating. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think Love that the, the absence of heat in the curry powder speaks to that desire to add uh, the particular type of heat and a particular level of heat on your own after. Right, right. Well, I have one last question for you. And that is, you've spent so much time there, and of course you're an accomplished uh, chef and, and cook and writer um, of so many foods. But is there one flavor, one taste, or a particular dish that you crave when you're not there? Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. There's two things actually. The first is um, a fruit that's called uh, we call it uh, pomerac. But it's actually South. It's from the South Pacific. It was one of the fruits brought by Captain Bly um, to the Caribbean from the South Pacific, along with breadfruit and pineapple. Um, and it's also called the Malay apple or the Otahete apple. People, some of your listeners might have had it in Hawaii. Um, and it kind of looks like a red pear, a small red pear, with it just a more scarlet-colored skin. And it's very white inside and very, it's got a sweet tart. Uh, flavor and a consistency that's it's almost like a crisp pear, um, and it's so delicious and it's too perishable to come to the United States. So I, I crave that very much. Mm. Um, and the other thing is uh, curried pomsite, which is pomsite or pomsiter is a dendritic citrus fruit, a fruit that has like a pit in the middle that has almost arms coming and radiating out of it. Mm. It's very it's very prickly. But they curry it, and it's got this just amazing, sweet tart, and then the curry flavor, and it's the most delicious thing. And, and I really crave that because that's a little bit that you can get it here, the Ponce table. It's a little difficult to get. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't crave coconut anymore because we're so lucky. <laughs> you can that have it anytime. Get it here, right? <laughs> right. But I used to. I used to. I when I was a child, I would just 
you know, always be on the hunt for that coconut ice cream, that coconut cookie, that coconut lifesaver, <laughs> the Mounds Bar, those <laughs> rare, rare things in American culture that had coconut. And I don't have that problem anymore, so that's pretty great. All right. Well, and anyone who's looking for new ways to use a coconut can certainly find it in your most recent book, Cooking with Coconut. Uh, fascinating and beautiful photographs as well. Um, and... Of course, Sweet Hands, your um, uh, previous book on the island cooking of Trinidad and Tobago, will give people an insight into um, so many of these wonderful dishes and the influences that play in it. Ramin, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure and an education, and I'm I'm thrilled to have had you um, speak with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight, and I, I appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you. Ramin Ganeshram, and I'm happy that you were listening and hope you'll tune in again. This is Linda Palaccio for A Taste of the Past, and we are a show on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. <laughs> for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.